Welcome to Babel, Translating the Middle East, a podcast from the Middle East program at CSIS. Here on Babel, we take you beyond the headlines to take a closer look at what's happening in the Middle East and why it matters. This week on Babel, John speaks with Dr. Haider Al-Abadi about his tenure as Prime Minister of Iraq. Then, John, Natasha, and Danny continue the conversation about the roots of systemic corruption in Iraq and the consequences of the country's sectarian political system. To translate some of what's happening in the Middle East, this is Babel. Dr. Haider Labadi was the Prime Minister of Iraq from 2014 to 2018. He had earlier served as an Iraqi parliamentarian after decades in exile as an active member of the Dawa Party. He has a PhD in electrical engineering from the University of Manchester, and he is the author of a recent book, Impossible Victory, How Iraq Defeated ISIS. Dr. Labadi, welcome to Babel. Okay, welcome. Thank you for having me. You say in your book that the U.S. threw money and resources into creating pockets of capacity where it mattered to them, such as intelligence and counterterrorism. If that's what mattered to the United States, why was the Islamic State able to establish such a strong foothold in Iraq? Well, this is a very good question, to be honest with you, but don't forget, Daesh or ISIS has established foothold on Syria first. They build their capabilities, their numbers, their training. They controlled large areas in Syria. They controlled few oil wells there. And uh, they had then the capacity to invade Iraq. And they invaded, which is western Iraq, northern Iraq, across uh, the Syrian border. So they were being enabled in Syria, then they were able to cross into Iraq. Having said that, there were some weaknesses in Iraq because these areas were probably not very much amalgamated in the rest of Iraq. There was a sectarian problem in the country between some political groups against the government of Baghdad, and that sectarianism has helped Daesh to have foothold in the country. Do you think that the seeds of a resurgence are still there? Is it possible that these western regions of Iraq that retain sectarian tensions might again host extremist groups that rise up against the central government? Not uh, to a large extent. I think uh, it's not dangerous, but what is there in Syria is dangerous. And the remnants of the ideology of Daesh or ISIS is very dangerous. It's still there. As I said in the book, you have young people who have been misled. They think the Islamic world is not playing any role in the international arena, and they wanted a voice. And they have been misled through this way, the way of oppression, of using force, of using fear to make their presence felt. And this is still there, unfortunately. What's the appropriate response from the government of Iraq? Well, one thing at the time was to get them out of the country by not allowing them to hold territory, because that was very important. When they hold territory, they were killing people. They were slaughtering innocent uh, civilians. So I think that was a, a huge task which we have achieved by kicking them out of our territories. So we have moved, I think, a long way to destroy them. But the ideology, I have to insist, the ideology is still there. And the reasons why that ideology has prospered, is still there, not only in Iraq. Now they're moving probably somewhere else in Nigeria, 
in Afghanistan is still there in this part of the world. So what do you do about it? Well, we have to build our own societies. We have to have good governance. And unfortunately, in this part of the world, there is very weak good governance. And you talked a lot in the book. You talked a lot when you were here at CSS in 2015 about corruption in Iraq. You argued that there was corruption in Iraq under Saddam Hussein. There's even more corruption under the U.S. troop presence. One vivid example you give is when the army was fighting against Daesh in Fallujah, you kept cutting the money for fuel, and you found that rather than weakening the army, it actually weakened Daesh because Daesh was getting all the fuel from the Iraqi army it was fighting. Saudi Arabia has a very active anti-corruption program. It has an anti-corruption agency, Nizaha, that seems entirely independent without a lot of oversight. Do you think that a country like Iraq should adopt an anti-corruption program like Saudi Arabia? Well, we have on paper, I think we have anti-corruption commission here, which called Nizaha Commission is the same name. And it's been established post-2003. We have some in our other departments. But the point is this. In Saudi Arabia, it's just one system, one ruler. So the ruler can control uh, many things. With democracy, especially weak democracy, you have many, many disadvantages where there are many who are rulers and nobody owns the system. This system doesn't belong to them. They have only to get what they want. And they are not responsible for the consequences. When you are a responsible person or group, you will carry consequences for what you do. And this is, I think, one of the problems. We have created democracy, but that democracy doesn't have owners, unfortunately. One of the things I thought was really impressive about your book is you gave a sense of just how treacherous Iraqi politics can be. What surprised me was I didn't hear a lot about allies, people you relied on, people you thought you could trust. If you were to advise one of your successors, what would you tell him about how to build durable alliances in Iraq? Number one is to be very fair, uh, because this can be very aggravated when you are not fair. If you tilt to one side on the account of the other not being fair, you are creating a very solid enemies to you, and they will get to you. And those who are, you have treated them very nicely, there is no guarantee they will stay with you. So A, you have to be very, very fair and very balanced. And two, I think you have to deal with them. You have to look into their eyes. You have to listen to them. And they have some grievances which you have to answer, which you have to address. Some of their grievances, they have right. You have to address it. You have to correct it. And these grievances which are not correct, you have to explain it to them, at least They can look at you as being a fair, being balanced, and they can trust you. If they don't trust you, I don't think you will have any allies. One of the really tricky issues in Iraq is the Iranian presence. And you and I spoke about it at CSS in 2015. You said it was unacceptable for Qasem Soleimani to play such a visible role defeating Daesh. Your book is very complimentary about the popular mobilization forces, but a number of analysts have pointed out that some PMF elements reject the authority of the prime minister and seem tied to Iranian forces. Are Iranian threats to Iraqi sovereignty a continuing problem in your view? And if so, what does Iraq need to do about it? Don't forget, at that time, we were living in a different era. Uh, Daesh was a threat. And although it was a threat to us in Iraq, it was a threat to the West. 
It was a threat to the Iranians as well, don't forget. It was a national interest for Iran to fight Daesh, to stop it spreading to their border. Daesh got very close to Iran. They got almost on the Iranian border in Diyala. So I think they have huge interest. We, at that time, we had common interest to fight a common in- enemy. Now, the PMF, they fought with us. They were under the same umbrella. They have their weaknesses. They have their drawbacks, the same with our military units. But they were Iraqi who are fighting for their country. They have answered the call of Ayatollah Sistani to defend the country. They had very little training, very little knowledge of the infrastructure of a fighting force or a discipline. So we had to work with them. But uh, at the time, they were very disciplined within the Iraqi units, within the Iraqi combat units. So there is a balance between a leadership, a prime minister or government, and a fighting force. If the government is weak, if the government is giving in to militias, to armed groups, then I think the balance will shift. That's what happened post-2018, where these little armed groups who have political affiliation become stronger than the state itself. And I think whoever is in the seat of the government probably become accomplice to this by being very weak. I'm not saying they should fight them in the streets, but they should put a limit to what they can do. Arms outside the state is not allowed. Uh, Mixing politics with military is not acceptable at all. And I think these lines, which I've drawn during my time, I've drawn it very clearly, almost uh, were very faint later on. I think this is the problem. There are volunteers in the fight against Daesh were very useful, were fundamental in our winning the war. These are Iraqis who have their good hearts. They want to defend their country. Don't forget, Daesh are ideological. You need an ideological element opposing them so that you can defeat them. And they sit there very, very nicely in the fight against this terrorist organization. But the government must be strong. They must have very clear vision where the arm ends. You cannot have a political army and then a military wing to that political army. That's what happened post-2018. That was very unfortunate. When you spoke here at CSS in 2015, you said that the Iraqi constitution calls for decentralization. And you said that in your view as prime minister, there are no limits to decentralization. Of course, two years later, Iraq had a political crisis when the Kurdish region voted overwhelmingly in favor of independence. As you look forward, What do you think the role of decentralization should be in Iraq? And to what extent do Iraqis have to be together and accommodate difference in a better way? Well, I still uh, believe in decentralization. You cannot run all the areas centrally. You cannot answer the demands of the people only from the center. People should have representation in their quality, and they should be able to answer the grievances and answer the needs of the people locally. What happened in 2017 was not decentralization, was separation, was partition of the country. And there is no stop to that, to be honest with you. If you started from the KRG, you'll end up in Basra, you'll end up in Mosul, and the, the whole country will disintegrate. And don't forget, we have very powerful neighbors, and those neighbors have interests as well. And these interests are complicated and they are conflicting and we'll end up being very weak inside the country and will not be able separately or independently to really achieve the interests of their own people. 
that's a very dangerous road to take. And uh, we have a constitution, and in that constitution, we voted that Iraq is one country. Uh, yes, it have decentralized uh, local governments, but you shouldn't touch the the fundamental of the constitution where Iraq is one country. And it's very unfortunate that uh, the leaders in KRG has thought that since the Daesh is no threat to them anymore, and we were still at that time preoccupied with Daesh in the Western Anbar, they decided that it is time for them to vote for separation from Iraq. Uh, I think it was very unwise. I respect uh, the dreams of our Kurdish population in that regard. But of course, uh, we are together in one country. You cannot just hold a so and try to cut that branch of the country. I want to ask a few questions about the military. And one of the things that I found very surprising in your book is you said that even 10 years after the U.S. military entered Iraq, the Iraqi military remained extraordinarily weak on logistics. And you pointed out in several places in your book that even for the Iraqi army to feed soldiers fighting on the front line was often beyond the army's capability. Why, if the U.S. was committed to building an Iraqi army, was this failing still there 10 years later? I think the idea was uh, the U.S. will never leave Iraq. Don't forget. I mean, did, did the U.S. leave any other country who has so far with them? I think there are 83 countries where the U.S. army are there. They never left it. So they thought they will stay in Iraq and they will still manage the logistics and everything else. And when you are minding someone or some other entity and you think you'll be always there, you will never think the need to make them independent in that regard. The U.S. is a superpower. They have all the capabilities. There was a huge, huge gap between our capabilities and theirs because we didn't only not having army. We have a demoralized, collapsed army, destroyed country. So there is a huge gap which needs many years of efforts to build our own capabilities. And I think planners within the U.S. or the U.S. military thought it's much easier for them to run the show than uh, spend so much in bringing these capabilities to the Iraqis. And the major one is, do they want to enable Iraqis so that they will ask them to leave? I mean, this is a major question, I think. You say that, that there's a question of who would run the show. And I was surprised to learn from your book just how much you ran the show and how many military decisions you made, both about strategy and tactics. You weren't trained as a military person. You were trained as an electrical engineer. What experiences did you draw on to make the military decisions you made as prime minister and commander in chief? It's not only engineering, it's political experience as well, social experience. I think uh, being a good decision maker or a good leader, there is not just one element. There are many other elements. It depends how you utilize them, how you use them. In engineering, especially engineering who have a social dimension where you deal with people, especially this rapid transportation, you are dealing with moving people, how people think, how people will react with you, with your decisions as well. Uh, this will help you to collect data, to analyze data, and to make these data available so that they are complementary to the behavior of the people. You have owned something which will act automatically in your mind. You don't even need a lot of time to analyze it. It's just there in your mind, in your brain, and in your heart as well. And don't forget, uh, when I talk about uh, 
engineering is machines. It's much harder when you talk about society and about politics. You are dealing with people, life of the people, and the war is a decision of uh, life or death as well. So to me, it's very critical. And to me, it was very worrying. And I did have nightmares on this, that uh, in my hand, the decision that who should live and who should die may, at the end of the day, uh, rely on a decision by me. I think uh, it's very hard to have that on my shoulder. I don't want to lose my soul in that regard. I was very careful, even with my enemies. I spent hours analyzing my enemies. I didn't want to make mistakes, although they are my enemies, they are fighting us. But still, they have civilians among them. They have innocent people among them. Uh, and you shouldn't uh, treat them all at one. It's hard. Of course, it's much easier if you uh, just draw a curtain and say, they are bad, we are good. Uh, but I couldn't do that. My inside wouldn't allow me to do that. So it was tough, yes. It's much tougher than engineering. Much tougher. So as a very reflective person, if you could do one thing over from your time as prime minister, what would you do differently? On uh, economical front, to concentrate on how to raise the standard of living of people, how to create more jobs. I didn't have that chance, to be honest with you. Although I did spend some time to address these issues. But you need a lot of fundamental decisions to change the whole thing in the right direction. With the war on, you didn't want to create many other problems for you. But the lack of resources, uh, I mean, you, you are one person. And I, I know you have advisors and helpers. But still, Commander-in-Chief, the Constitution, the Constitution left it very, very open. Uh, he doesn't have any deputy. And he cannot relegate uh, responsibilities to others. It has to be done by me. I have to be there. I have to make the decision. So it was very time-consuming and energy-consuming and consuming of the mind. And I think uh, the economical well-being of the people is very important. Number one, create job. Number two, to make some changes to the life of the people so there will be hope for the people who are moving in the right direction and rebuilding their, their lives. We did that for the war and we achieved victory, but I think we needed this one to go parallel with it. Do you miss being prime minister of Iraq? No, I never miss that. I just stayed the same life as I was before being prime minister. So personally, I didn't miss that. Yes, I missed when I left after a while that what decision I made and achievements I've made, those who came after me, they didn't realize the depth of that. And they started to unpack them. And then we moved in the wrong direction. That's what happened later. Dr. Haider Labadi, former prime minister of Iraq and author of Impossible Victory, How Iraq Defeated ISIS. Thank you for joining us on Babel. Thank you. Next, John, Natasha, and Danny continue the conversation about the roots of corruption in Iraq and the consequences of Iraq's sectarian political system. I was fascinated by Dr. Alabadi's framing of Iraq as a democracy without owners that enables corruption in ways the Saudi monarchy does not. I've always understood conventional wisdom to be the opposite, that democracy is a necessary condition for transparency and rule of law, while authoritarian monarchy breeds corruption. What about democracy in Iraq lends itself to Dr. Alabadi's model and the proliferation of corruption and not to greater transparency as might be expected? 
Well, scholars continue to mull over the various factors that lead to, to greater corruption. And certainly, I think well-established democracies consistently have less corruption, but the picture is less clear for nascent democracies like Iraq. Certainly, there's sometimes less corruption in authoritarian states, but that's certainly not always the case. The, the saying, you know, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely doesn't come out of nowhere. But that said, I think Iraq also has a lot of characteristics which contribute. It is a heterogeneous society. It's sort of a confessional system. It's an oil-rich state. All of these things can add to corruption in a sort of emerging democracy. But it also became a democracy under very unique circumstances. The United States invaded. They occupied the country. There were massive infusions of money into the country to serve short-term military needs through a fund called SERP. And these served those short-term military needs, but they didn't necessarily foster good governance that was needed in Iraq. But there's also even more fundamental problem that I think goes to the model issue that Danny's talking about. And that is that Iraq became a country without any institutions. You had a dictatorship where there were really powerful institutions and you had the Ba'ath Party and you had Saddam Hussein's regime, and you had the army, and you had a lot of institutions. And one of the things the U.S. government and the coalition did is they destroyed all the institutions in the country. They imposed a sectarian system as a way of ensuring broad participation, but they never had a strong governance institution over the sectarian system and institution. That created an environment where you had warlords you had people, as Natasha say, that were chasing large amounts of cash. There was vast corruption. And the United States government, in some ways, turned a blind eye to the corruption because it was trying to get a lot of things done. And that let the corruption get even more embedded. I think that what Dr. Abadi was frustrated by is once you have all that corruption around, how do you create an institution of accountability that an, a higher layer. And I don't think he was ever really able to establish it. I don't think his successors have been able to establish it. In some ways, it's the same problem as Lebanon, that there's nobody with centralized authority to hold others to account. And as a consequence, you have groups that try to exploit as much as they can exploit. And the counter is other groups that are also exploitative, but nobody who's looking after the general interest in having non-exploitative institutions. So how does Iraq's democratic corruption, if you will, compare to other democracies, nominal or otherwise, in the Middle East, let's say Lebanon or Tunisia or even Israel? Is there a common thread? Well, I would take a look at Lebanon and Iraq, which are increasingly looking more like each other, uh, politically speaking. They're both heterogeneous societies, which makes them beautiful countries. But rather than having that diversity under the surface of politics, with issues actually affecting people's daily lives being at the forefront of politics, you sort of have the opposite. And sort of the confessional system, and I think that the competition and cacophony of vested interests, as John was talking about, that that breeds and sort of takes center stage. And even when you have moments of unity across sects, like we saw, I think, in 2018 in Iraq and more recently in Lebanon, the immediate lack of progress with those movements, which is perhaps unsurprising, I think causes people immediately to revert back to their sects 
to the corruption that takes care of them in the near term, even though it's horribly detrimental to society over the long term. You know, Israel is different because Israel really does have institutions that hold everybody to account. And the fact that you've had so many Israeli prime ministers and presidents in jail for their behavior is a sign that there is genuinely accountability. Lebanon has had a much harder time imposing accountability. I think there is a sense that a lot of people have in Egypt that there is accountability except for the military, which is only accountable to itself. But establishing these institutions that are above all the other players is very hard. And what we see in Saudi Arabia, which has made a big push toward accountability and, and what they call the Integrity Commission and Zaha. But who holds the Integrity Commission to account? And there seem to be no checks on that. And then that becomes potentially an unconstrained institution, which and it can abuse its authority. John, when we spoke about corruption in Iraq last time, after your conversation with Jane Araf, you spoke about your sense that corruption thrives when there is an imbalance of institutions holding each other accountable. Today, we're also talking about the absence of institutions in general. How can Iraq work to address that imbalance without worsening political gridlock? Well, as you know, there's been tremendous gridlock in Iraq. They had elections in October and they can't figure out how to put together a ruling coalition. I don't know what the solution to that is. Certainly the fact that oil prices are up gives the Iraqis a little more leeway to make deals, but they haven't been able to make deals. I have always been very, very concerned at the way the U.S. imposed the sectarian system on Iraq that was informally there in some ways, but we formalized it. I think it was a mistake because it reduced Iraqi politics to math. And when politics are reduced to math, some people look and say, there's no way I can ever win. And so why should I stay in the system? And you have a lot of external players, including Iran, but not just Iran. And it feels to me like rather than coming together, Iraqi politics are moving further and further apart. It may be that the leadership is able to come together. And when I saw Prime Minister Khadami in, in Washington last summer, I thought he had a really impressive vision for the country. It's not clear he's going to remain prime minister. It's not clear whether President Barham Saleh is going to remain president. It feels to me like they haven't begun to figure out a way to resolve issues. There is enough oil to avoid crises. You can lubricate the system, but you can't solve the underlying contradictions of Iraq, which are at least in part a consequence of the mistakes of the U.S. occupation. Yeah, I mean, I, I think you have that at the at the civilian political level, but I think also at the ground level, as long as you have sort of vested interests with guns, whether they are local or domestic or foreign, it's going to be hard to strip the corruption that we're talking about and, and sort of, I, I think, also lubricate politics in Iraq more broadly because it's it's dangerous to be in politics in Iraq. And I was surprised that Dr. Abadi didn't talk about sort of the snake pit that, that Iraqi politics can be. And we've seen that with civil society leaders that are have been in immediate danger. Investigators, journalists have been killed, detained and forced into exile in Iraq. We've also seen that with Prime Minister Khadami himself. So I think it's um, it's fairly grim. 
It's good that, that oil prices are high at the moment, as John was saying, but it will be difficult, I think, to come out of that gridlock and also reach a government that is able to truly govern people, hold people accountable, regulate in a way that improves people's daily lives as well. I think that there needs to be that vision in addition to forming this government. But I think one of the things, you know, when I was in Iraq, when Prime Minister Abadi was prime minister, I was really impressed that he was putting forward a vision of responsible government, putting forward a vision of a government that was had obligations to its people, that police could not act without constraints. And I think that's what we saw from Prime Minister Kadami as well, that, that there is an impulse among some Iraqi politicians toward better governance, but it is in a world that is pervaded in part, as Natasha said, by threats of violence, in part by outrageous corruption. And how do you create good governance in that environment? It's very, very hard. I think that for, especially for the period where Dr. Abadi was prime minister, there was this sense amongst Iraqis that they needed to be unified against this threat that was ISIS. And unfortunately, the army kind of melted away, which speaks to a bit about the corruption issues that we were talking about earlier. But in its wake emerged the PMF, the Popular Mobilization Forces. Early on in the Iraqi war, many militias sort of took shape. Some of them changed names over the course of years, and they eventually essentially became a more standardized force within the Iraqi army called the Popular Mobilization Forces. And they essentially took on the main role in countering ISIS when ISIS took control of about 40% of Iraq in 2014. And they were perceived to be sectarian and Shia and were feared by the Sunni population in the northwestern parts of Iraq. Well, especially during the, the tenure of Prime Minister Maliki, these militias had a lot of freedom of movement. And many of the people that I was interviewing for resettlements in the United States actually in Baghdad during that period of time were victims of these militia groups, which tended to be backed by Iran. They were primarily Shia militia groups. And many Sunnis that I interviewed lived in great fear of, of these militias over the years. So the fact that these same groups coalesced to form the PMF or the Popular Mobilization Forces to then counter ISIS also created I think, possibly deep or deepened sectarian divisions as well. And, you know, I was interviewing lots of Iraqis in Baghdad over the years. And, you know, these militia groups were terrorizing people <laughs> prior to, to 2014. And, you know, I think that right now, Iraq and, you know, after 2018 and, and after Prime Minister Abadi left that seat, I think now we're facing a situation where Iraqis have to figure out what to do about that, what to do about the PMF, you know, what, how to make Iraqi governance from the parliament to the actual military more inclusive and more accountable. And I think that that's, that's difficult. And without that sort of shared enemy of ISIS amongst a lot of Iraqis, I think that's even more difficult. John, Natasha, thank you for joining me. Thank you, Danny. Thanks, Danny. Thanks for listening to Babel. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. 
You can find more analysis on this topic linked in the show notes on the CSIS website, and you can find us on Twitter at CSIS Mideast. 